If you've got a Bible this morning, you might just want to turn to Psalm 73 for a few moments. I'm going to read a verse or two then. Uh, you may feel that I forgot about it and we'll come back to it after, after a little time. So Psalm 73. It's not a Psalm of David, but it's probably got at the top of your Bible. It's a Psalm of Asaph and I'll explain who Asaph is in a few moments. But it says there, surely God is good to Israel and to those that are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we'll go on a little later with that particular psalm. We are having a a short series in these uh, early summer weeks. uh, Prior to our six sizzling Sundays where different people will be coming in to minister and bring the word of the Lord on A whole sense of encouraging the overcoming life. God wants us to be overcomers. He was an overcomer and he wants us to be overcomers. I hope that you've heard over the last three or four weeks already that we've sought to root this in reality. So it's not just a a, a triumphalistic sort of rant um, that places guilt upon people. Uh, That's not the intention. That said, God continually wants to change us. He wants to deal with us. And as we've heard in our worship time this morning... He doesn't want us to live with limits. He really doesn't. And uh, the fact is, friends, that every one of us need to increasingly lift the lid over our lives because God wants to do far more than we could ever ask or think. And it's a battle because it's a spiritual battle. Uh, the enemy loves to uh, uh, determine our lives. He loves to uh, put his stamp upon them. And one of the things that he will always seek to do is to limit. So if he can limit us by living under the blues, he'll do it. That's why we want to defeat them. If he can limit us by uh, the fact that we live under the reds and we, don't, and we don't defeat anger, but we live with it as Christian expounded last week, he'll do it. So we're encouraging the opposite. We're encouraging in these times that actually, even though we may go through times and difficult situations, and even though sometimes people, some people may be more prone to that than others, God actually wants us to live with an amazing hope that pushes back the lid of the blues over our lives. And even though we may sometimes go through through some fraught and stressful situations, God doesn't want us to live with an angry attitude and he wants us to push back on it so that we may be defeated. And this morning, as the slide suggests, we're going to talk about defeating the Greens. And as we've already looked at defeating despondency and defeating anger, we're going to look this morning at at pushing back anything in our lives that would be envious. Um, and uh, we pray that God will minister to us. As I was just preparing this message this week, I, I, I just went to the dictionary definition. Sometimes it helps and sometimes it, it, it you know, he just thinks, so what? But when I went to the dictionary def- definition of envy this week, I, I was surprised at just how hard-hitting uh, the understanding and the definition of envy was. And I'll read it to you. It's this. It's a bitter A bitter or longing contemplation of another's better fortunes or qualities. Another word that you could put in the mix there is the word malice. And I want to say, friends, that if we allow those things to gain ascendancy in our lives, it can potentially have a destructive impact. You see, too many people live with bitterness for all sorts of reasons. And bitterness, friends, does not position us for the blessing of God. 
He doesn't place us in a, in, a, in a situation where we can sense the presence of God. Bitterness will never bring us to a place where the prophetic flows in our lives, where we hear the now word of God for our particular situation. It will cause us not to flourish, but to be pushed back on what God has got. Notice it says there, an envy or a bitter or longing contemplation on another person's better fortunes. Materialism. What a challenge we live with in the Western world. If you don't think this is in the church, uh, when, when we need to, you know, we need to recognise it, friends, because one of the huge problems with a Western society is that that sort of thing has massively impacted the church. The great moves of God around the world today, friends, where there's community transformation, where people are being born, uh, being born again faster than they're being born, where churches are being planted, which you can't even keep count of, and not in those contexts. They're in contexts where people are living on $2 a day. They're in contexts, friends, where everything seems to work against them, and yet God is building prevailing church. No problem with material possessions. Let me just qualify that. But the reality is that if you live your life with a bitter longing contemplation of what everybody else has always got, you are not going to be blessed. You are not going to be blessed. So the, the old adage, which, was, which is not used so much nowadays, but was more used when I was growing up about keeping up with the Joneses. I've spoken to people, friends, who have lived on certain uh, nice estates where if the neighbour changed the car, they felt they've got to change the car to keep up with them. And we think this is all made up. But like most cliches, it has a huge sense of truthfulness to it. Where if somebody else did a conservatory on the back of the house, we've got to have a conservatory as well. And so it goes on and on. Why? Because people are forever looking with longing contemplation at others. It's, oh, no, that didn't affect me. Really? Really? God wants to dig deep into our hearts today, friends, to, 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 to ask us again whether our lives are defined by what we are in Christ or what we've got on this earth. I want to tell you, friends, that what's going to last forever is what you are in Christ, not what you have on this earth. Great for us to be patronizing today of the Romanian man who spoke to Bob in his 80-odd 80, 80 years, and Bob says to him, well, you're looking really well. What's the secret? Well, you know, because... I don't sort of hold on to the things of this life very strongly. Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's okay for him. But we live in a different world. And, you know, we need to really deal with this in our lives. The fact of the matter is that some people can be amazingly blessed for all sorts of reasons and actually not live with any sense of being uh, affected by the greens. And some people can have a very limited lifestyle and are completely racked by envy. And it's a heart thing. And you need to deal with it. And then it goes on in that particular definition about other people's qualities. You see, sometimes we can be bitterly envious of people simply because of their character or gifts. Well, I wish I could play the piano. You're never going to play the piano. You're going to spend the next 20 years bemoaning the fact that you wish you could play the piano like Julie. Friends, God's got something else for you. He's got something else for you. You need to get your eyes off what you can't do and what you've not got and where other people are blessed and find out what God's primary purpose and destiny is for your life. The classic example in the Old Testament, of course, was 
Saul, uh, sorry, King uh, David and King Saul at the time. And in 1 Samuel 17, you know the story so well. Most people outside of church would know the story well about David slaying Goliath. And it's a fantastic, when I use the word story, a real story. But it speaks so powerfully about the intimidatory nature of the, the enemy roaring out across the valley every day. And the people quaking. And then this little guy comes along. And God loves to take all the people like this because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. David says, I'll take him on. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not coming against him with any human ability. I'm coming against him in the name of the Lord. And if you read the, the passage carefully, you'll find that as David confronts David, he speaks prophetically to what's going to happen. He was so impassioned. He was so anointed by the Spirit of God. The story is well known. Goliath's defeated. The people come and, and get behind uh, David. And they begin to sing their songs. And you know, great victories often bring a song. Some of you that have played sport over, over the years will know that sometimes when you've had a great victory, sometimes if it's been particularly against the, hot, against the odds, the dressing room will go into a song. And it's just a pump song. Soldiers very often have sung on the way back from battle over the years. And so they began to sing a song. They say, Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And 1 Samuel 18 and verse 18, Saul was angry. The refrain galled him. And from that time, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Envy. The Greens were literally going to kill him. I wrote a piece for our Assemblies of God leaders just a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 20. And the heart of it was that we celebrate each other's successes. And leaders are very poor at that. Because if somebody else is getting really blessed and pumped down the road, thinking, hum, hum, well, I don't come to our church, you know, there must be something wrong. You know, there was a comment I heard this week, you know, that whenever church is blessed and grown, people are saying, well, there's got to be something wrong with it. If it's growing, you know. In other words, friends, we, we maintain the status quo to prove that we're spiritual forever. That's what churches have done. We, we continually reduce in size because we're after real depth. But that church down the road that's gone to four, five, six hundred, there's got to be something wrong with it. No, there's nothing wrong with it. And what we need to learn, friends, is to celebrate other successes. That we don't enviously look on and decry it and look to pick over it. But we celebrate joyously, generously and willingly when other people do well. What happens when somebody gets blessed in our church? What happens when somebody gets promoted? What happens when somebody has a profile in the church? What happens when somebody's gift begins to emerge in our church? Maybe in a public context. What happens if somebody gets up in this church that's never preached before and preaches up a storm? And everybody applauds and says, that was absolutely fantastic, the gift of God's on that person. What's happening in our hearts? Because what ought to be happening is, go on, son. But very often, huh. And it's the greens. And I said that when we capture a spirit that celebrates each other's successes such a spirit is a magnet for the favor of God if we want the favor of God over arena church in an increased way then we have to deal with envy and so to Psalm 73 written by Asaph if you read 1 Chronicles 16 verses 4 to 5 you'll find that Asaph was a chief worship leader in the tabernacle of David's he was a man who loved God honored God and blessed God so this wasn't some sort of a uh, flaky person that was sort of just giving vent to his feelings. 
where we could simply say, get a grip, mate, and grow up. This was somebody at the very heart of the worship atmosphere and expression of the nation of Israel. But this psalm began to give expression to his problem with the greens. And the particular envy that began to bubble up in his heart was that he became an onlooker of people. Paul's encouraged us today, not look at ourselves, but to look to God. And you know also, we need to stop looking at other people and we need to look to God. Because as he looked at other people, it seemed that actually life was pretty unfair. And so as we read earlier, as I, Asaph was, was brutally honest. He says, as I, as I look at these people, my feet have almost slipped. I've nearly lost my foothold. Because I have envied the arrogance. Let's put it into 21st century language, friends. I don't know whether I want to follow God anymore. That's what he was saying. I'm just just about hanging on to my face. And he began to list the envy that was in his heart as he looked upon people that didn't love God and seemed to be doing very well. Thank you very much. I've got 11 things here. I'm just going to bullet point them. I'm not going to relate, expand them. We could dwell at all of them. But in verse 3, he saw their prosperity. He saw their prosperity. So the guy next to you that's not a Christian and that swears in cusses as his wife, and they seem to have a few fights every now and then, all of a sudden turns up in a brand new car and says, and says Phil, guess what? Just got a directorship at work. Things have never been better. All right, yeah. Yeah, well, that's really good to hear. And then you try and pray. Thank God. He envied friends when, in verse 4, he says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are always healthy. You can see how the perspective's going skew, friends. You know, when I go shopping with Sharon, one, I'm not a fond shopper, but sometimes we have this arrangement. I say, you just go in the shop. And I'll just, I'll just stand down here, you know. And actually, I wish I wouldn't do it because it wrecks me. I start to count how many wheelchairs have come past in 15 minutes that I've been standing there. I start to, I, I was just driving across the road just then. There was a, there was a guy, what? I thought, I wonder what his world's like. And yet, and yet Asaph says, everybody's healthy and strong out there. Nobody's got an illness. Nobody's limping. Nobody's lame. They're all absolutely fine. Verse 5, they're free from burdens. Verse 6, pride is worn like a necklace around their neck. Verse 6, they sometimes run to violence. Verses 7 and 8, they're callous and threatening. Verse 9, they're boastful. Verse 10, they decry God. And he finishes off in verse 11, uh, sorry, in verse 12 by saying they're carefree and they're always increasing in wealth. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. He fixed his envious gaze upon the uh, ungodly and said to God, God, I'm not sure whether all this putting God first in my life and seeking first the kingdom is really worth it. Before you get too sort of hot under the collar with him, Anybody else been there? Anybody else been there? Not sure, God, whether, you know, I've tried to put you first. My family's tried to seek first the kingdom. But it seems that all these people that don't love you are doing very well, thanks very much. And actually, my life at the moment is a bit of a struggle. So how did Asaph and how should we come to a place 
of defeating the greens in our lives. When we are tempted to bitterly look on at people with, with longing contemplation, one with regard to their, their issues materially, their material possessions, one to look on people spiritually in terms of their gifts, character and quality, and one even to gaze on people in terms of their carnality, in terms of unbelievers that seem to be okay. Three things. Three things that will help us defeat the Greens. Number one, intercession. Verse 17. First phrase. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Asaph was a worshipper. He thought, I better get worshipping. I better come again to my God. I better come to the sanctuary. I better lay myself before the Lord because this is getting out of control. And do you know what, friends? God's called every one of us here to be a worshipper. You may not have a brilliant voice, but you can be a worshipper. Because as Christians reminded us this morning, worship is not simply defined by singing. And if you want the worship to go on, you must always understand that the worship is always going on. He came to the sanctuary. And he put himself before God in a place of seeking after the Lord. You will know that in the Old Testament, the sanctuary, the presence of God, the meeting place was determined by a tangible building or tent or place where people could look on. But not now. We thank God for Arena Church on a Sunday morning, friends. But you coming to the sanctuary is not defined by coming to Arena Church on a Sunday. You'll still hear some people say, Oh, brother, we've just come into the sanctuary. No, you haven't. You've just walked into a building with a sloping ceiling to worship God in community. And that's a real privilege. But the reality is that the sanctuary can be part of your life every day. Because here's the new order of the New Testament post the cross. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, the sanctuary. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Now having our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, one of the first ways that we can defeat the green seeking to squeeze down over our lives is that we come afresh to God. We worship, we pray, we seek his face, we yield again. We come in intercession before our Lord and say, God, all those things bubbling up in my heart that potentially can cause me to become bitter, to look on at people that seem to be doing okay, to cause me to forever complain to you, I give it all again to you, Lord. If you'll pray like that, something will happen every time. The old Joseph Scriven hymn of many years ago says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Friends, if you come to Arena this morning, if you've gathered with the people of God, if this is an issue for you, we're encouraging you that you need to come to a place of beginning to defeat it. And it starts with you coming afresh to God. 
You know, friends, worship and coming to God is an amazing thing. We need to do it regularly on our own, and we need to do it as part of community. I don't know about you, but every time, every time I do it, even again this morning, every time we come to God, something happens in our hearts. Something happens, friends, that touches us afresh, that draws us to the Lord. And we don't have to come to God sophisticatedly. We don't have to come with sham. We can come in absolute vulnerability. We can come with honesty. We can come with our questions. We can come and and vent our spleen, but we do it to the right person in the right place. And that's on our knees before the Lord Almighty. Secondly, friends, not only intercession, but also he had comprehension. Because the second part of that, verse 17, says, Then I understood their final destiny. He'd been enviously spectating the wicked, but all of a sudden, a fresh, eternal perspective washed over him. And it caused him to see things as they really, really were. Jesus says, what does it profit man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? <clears throat> there have been many, many people, friends, that have literally seemed to gain any, everything in this world and yet have struggled to find the reality of what really life is all about. I read a front cover of a, of, of a, of a week, weekend paper yesterday where Bill Wyman says that he's, he's finally free of drink and drugs, it's took him a long time hasn't it, but you know, and he says I've never been happier, some of you may have read that story about Daniel Radcliffe this week the the boy that's become man on the back of the Harry Potter films went through a dreadful time just two, three years ago where he came to a place of not being able to live by alcohol and has come out of that the other side not a a believer, but people sometimes go into dark places friends because the reality is that the things of this life however many of them you've got will not fill that god-shaped void that can only be met in jesus christ that's why christian we need to keep preaching the gospel because it really is the power of god unto salvation it's still the answer and asaph came to an understanding that it wasn't about now it's about the future it wasn't about what we've got now it's about where we stand before god the Apostle Paul had a similar revelation and comprehension in the, in the New Testament. Because in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about some of the things he went through. In 2, 2 Corinthians, you need to read sometimes, because it's probably the most vulnerable letter that Paul wrote. It really speaks out of his heart. It really lets people into his worlds. And so he talks about the, the, the gospel being carried in jars of clay. But the price they paid for that was that they were hard-pressed on every side, crushed, perplexed, persecuted, abandoned, struck down. Always carrying around in their body the life of Jesus Christ. And so it goes on. And he went on to say, but therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If you'll come to God and spend some time with the Lord in intercession, prayer and worship, he'll bring you to a place of seeing things as they really are. And that helps people to live in an amazing way. Part of my week, this past past week, has has been sort of going up to our Bible college at Mattersea and just sharing with some of our ministers that are on the journey. On, On Wednesday night, we had a meal together. I sat next to a guy who's from Nairobi originally, Edward Kiyomoni. And he's been leading a church in Yorkshire. I says, have they taught you e-by gum yet, Edward? He says, well, they've tried. You know, big beaming smile, begin to talk to him, begin to hear his story. 
been to hear him mention about his second wife that's still living in Kenya. He says, Edward, what, what's the story there? He says, he says, my, he says my first wife, he said, we're happily married. We've got two boys. He said, uh, we, we were doing ministry. He said, I was just preparing to come to the UK to do my theological studies. He says, and my wife was killed in a car accident. Boom. In a moment's time. And he says, the thing that really grieved me was I didn't have time to say goodbye. You would never have known it because he had one of those big African smiles that just lit up the room. You see, you give and take away. You give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't live with that sort of thing, friends, without seeing what life's really all about. It's an eternal perspective. And whatever comes to us in this world, it's really all determined by the fact of where we're going to be in the next one. And people can have everything in this life. Everything. But what does that mean? If they stand before a living God without Jesus Christ being their Lord and their Savior. Number three, not only intercession, not only comprehension. But thirdly, illumination. And there's a number of things at the end of the psalm, and I'm just going to bullet point them because that will suffice us. But from verse 18 to the end of the psalm, Asaph takes on a completely different spirit. Starts verse 18 by saying, surely you place them on slippery ground. The Living Bible says of the people that you've been envious of, what a slippery pathway they are on. And I want to say this morning, friends, that we defeat the greens in our lives, not by looking on, but firstly by looking up. Verse 20. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will not despise them as fantasies. Verse 25. It says, when, who, am I, who am I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Verse 26. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. We need to look up. We've been reminded in worship. We know that God's not up. He's everywhere. He's, he's, he's there, he's there, he's there. He's even down there. He's everywhere. But in worship this morning, we remind you to look up. And there's a sense where we can just look up and say, God, you are amazing. You literally outnumbered the stars in the sky. You have put the planets in place. You are, you, what, however big the universe is, you're beyond it. And yet, you download all that in love to me. And we need to look up, friends, and be a worshipful people that have a renewed vision of how amazing God is in our lives. We also need to look in. Because in verse 21 it says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. Listen, I was a brute beast before you. Have you ever met any people like that that are so embittered, they actually, if I can be what the Bible's saying, they actually believe like animals. We need to look in. We need to check our heart regularly because out of the heart come the issues of life. That's the engine, friends, that determines the direction of your journey. You can have everything right on the outside, but if that heart is not in tune with the heartbeat of the living God, you're going to hit issues. And the psalmist says, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my heart became so embittered I behave like that. And thirdly, thirdly, friends, we need to look out. Because verse 28 says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Listen, I will tell of all your deeds. 
And Arena Church, when we begin to defeat the blues in our lives, when we begin to defeat the reds, when we begin to defeat the greens, when we don't live with envy of other people, other people's successes, other people's seeming prosperity in life, when we look up to the living God and get a renewed vision of our ears, when we look in and check our heart and make sure it's pure before the Lord, there's only one thing we ever want to do then, and that is to look out. It may be to look out right onto the doorstep of our church, through a number of things that take place in ministry to look out, to look out through Facebook, to look out through, through, uh, through children's ministries, to look out through mothers and toddlers, to look out through the meeting place, to look out through people sharing their faith across this town on a regular basis. It may be that we look out as we go to southeast Romania and look out at needy people in Constanza and those surrounding villages. It may be that somebody goes to Africa and looks out with AD on that hospital in Accra. But friends, there's all sorts of opportunities for us around this room to be people that are incredibly looking out and seeing a needy world and saying, we're going to tell of all of your mighty deeds. Asaph's conclusion, friends, brought him to a good place. Greens, defeated. Tick box. Someone says, measure wealth not by the things you have, but by the things for which you would not take money. Turn your eyes upon Jesus was the old song. And Hebrew says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of your faith. And the heart cry of this morning, friends, is that God doesn't want us to be diminished. He doesn't want us to be defined. He doesn't want us even to, if I can use the word, be belittled by living with a bitter contemplation on what everybody else has got. He wants you to see what you've got in God's, that you're precious to him, that he loves you with a passion. And what's ever seemingly happening in other people's worlds that would draw questions to that and even challenge that, that we'd come afresh with intercession and say, God, we're before you this morning, and we just worship you with all of our heart. Because out of that would come a fresh comprehension of the eternal values that God has caused us to live for. And it will bring illumination to our lives that won't cause us to look on, but to look up, to look in, and to look out, to declare the mighty deeds of the Lord Almighty.